We'll start. People will wander in. They won't know what we're talking about. At some point, someone should just uh, should come up with a weird word. No. All right. One, I, I sat in on a couple of sections on Friday, and uh, someone uh, interestingly denied in the account of, of Cleopatra that Shakespeare got women. Um, so I think what we'll do is, for our last two classes on Antony and Cleopatra, is um, talk about Antony today and Cleopatra on Friday. Um, and uh, that question of uh, how he represents Antony, how he represents Cleopatra, uh, those are questions that uh, we can treat both separately and together. Um, separately because they're two different characters, together because what they are as characters is um, primarily and um, most powerfully and most amazingly um, uh, created by what they are to and for each other and what they get out of each other, what they provoke from each other as characters. And um, they're both really pretty amazing. Shakespeare wants you to think of both of them together as the title tells you. And what they aren't in any way are mirror images of each other. We talked about this a little bit last week um, in the way, in one obvious way, this is what we were talking about last Tuesday, uh, the way they treat messengers who bring bad news. Um, what, what Antony says is, um, whoever gives, brings me bad news, though in his tale lie death, if he speaks true, though in his tale lie death, I hear him as he flattered. That is, um, all he wants is the truth, and no matter how bad that truth is, Antony will treat it as flattery. Cleopatra demands truth from the messenger who reports Antony's marriage to Octavia, and then she starts threatening that messenger and, um, and, and spurns him and hits him and wants him whipped and even thinks about ex executing him for telling, him, telling her the truth. Um, finally, the messenger, who's really frightened of her, um, she asks him some more, and he says, look, um, do you want me to lie to you? And she says, yeah. Um, she said, I would thou didst, um, even if it were to destroy half my kingdom. Um, yeah, I would prefer that you lied to me. Um, you have to think about who you're giving this news to. So there's an, one of many obvious contrasts between Antony and Cleopatra. What they aren't is a monolithic couple. Um, when we hear at the start of the play Antony saying that he binds on pain of punishment the world to wheat, that they stand up peerless, um, they are standing there partly like the two pillars of their world. That's in the context of Philo and Demetrius saying, you can see in Antony the triple pillar of the world transformed into a strumpet's fool. Um, here, it's, he's saying, no, there are only two pillars, Cleopatra and I, but they're separate. They're not a single pair. A way of putting this is to say, 
that unlike, for example, Oberon and Titania, um, who are different enough, but Oberon and Titania are essentially the same kind of people. In Antony and Cleopatra, you have an older couple whom Shakespeare is not representing, unlike Oberon and Titania, unlike Claudius and Gertrude, who are another older couple who really love each other, Claudius is, uh, Claudius, Shakespeare is not representing Antony and Cleopatra as mommy and daddy. And that may seem like, so what? Um, Romeo and Juliet aren't mommy and daddy either, um, but Romeo and Juliet are of the child's generation. To represent an older couple who love each other intensely and passionately as an older couple and not to represent them as mommy and daddy is an extraordinary, a subtle but an extraordinary achievement. Um, and they're, the way they aren't turned into a couple that we want to see happy together because we want to see a certain reconciliation um, as we do among our own parents when they're at odds with each other. To represent them not that way, but as completely, fully, independently human, a complete, full independence that they achieve because they are older, because they have a past and a history and a life and purposes, because each of them has the individuality that tragedy teaches and that tragedy represents, and to nevertheless treat them as a couple. That's something extraordinary that Shakespeare is doing in Antony and Cleopatra, is, is keeping their independence and their relationship simultaneously in the forefront of our experience of them. Um, you're mainly too young to know how extraordinary this is, um, but you'll see one day. Um, but in the meantime, we will talk about them, um, starting with Antony today, Cleopatra on Friday, but inevitably about both of them. So where we left off a week ago was um, Antony talking to the messenger, and we were noticing that the messenger um, first speaks of Fulvia, thy wife, first came into the field. And then um, a third messenger comes in to say, Fulvia, thy wife is dead. And we notice the two repetitions of that phrase, thy wife, which means that it's not an information-bearing phrase. Um, what we said is what will often happen in dialogue, especially clumsy dialogue, is that one character will give another character information that the second character already knows, but that the audience doesn't know. So there are two kinds of information the dialogue conveys when it's a trade in information. And one kind is um, one character informing another character about something, and the other kind is one character speaking in order to inform the audience about something. And in any well-written speech, those two things will be done in the same set of words. That is, um, a character will learn something and the audience will learn it at the same time. 
telling Antony that Fulvia is his wife is not something that Antony needs to know. We might think that we need to know it until we see the second instance of it. And then we realize, well, no, that can't be why it's there. So why is it there? And I'm going to hazard an answer here, um, which I'm convinced is right, but um, at least consider, which is that Antony in this play, and to some extent historically, although um, it's extremely, his fortunes um, oscillated a lot, but Antony in this play has extraordinary love from his followers, from his troops, from his men. They are completely devoted to him, as um, troops are to certain military leaders. Douglas MacArthur had the same kind of devotion from his troops. They would do anything for him. Antony was the kind of military leader who had absolute devotion when he did, which wasn't always. Sometimes um, he did have to deal with rebellions, but he had a very variegated military career. But Shakespeare is interested in the utter devotion that his followers gave him, which we see most of all at the end of his part of the play in the character of Eros, who rather than killing Antony and saving himself, kills himself and refuses to kill Antony. In real life, Antony um, had extraordinary devotion in bad times from his troops. So some of you probably um, know what, what decimation means. Everyone knows, what, knows the word, that if you get decimated, it means um, you've done really badly um, in some kind of contest or war. But it's actually a Roman practice, and it's a punishment that Roman troops who hadn't done well um, were forced to undergo, so if, which is that if you fought in a battle um, and you didn't give it your all and your leader got angry at you, um, you would be decimated, which is to say one out of every 10 troops would be executed. Um, and that was a punishment for your own troops. And Antony did decimate his troops in the part, the real Antony did decimate his troops in the Parthian campaign um, but his troops also volunteered for decimation. That is, they were sometimes so ashamed at what had happened in various battles that they volunteered for execution out of a strange um, but very deep sense of commitment to the whole corps and to their fellow soldiers and to him. So Shakespeare isn't going to try to represent decimation as, um, look how wonderful Antony is, he decimated his own troops. Um, that's not a winning strategy in trying to get an audience to like a character. It is, however, something that the historical Antony did. And the reason I bring it up is that the fact that his troops volunteered for decimation is what, um, what, what grabbed Shakespeare that their loyalty to him and their love of him was such that they, that they volunteered, that they stepped forward to take their punishment, that they wanted things to be corrected. Um, that's extraordinary. That's unusual. And that's what Shakespeare was interested in, in Antony, was the loyalty of his troops. Is your hand up? No. Um, OK. Uh, no, just a question. Um, so any of you want to take, um, one in ten people in this room want to take an F for the class? No, thank you. 
Really? See, if 10% of you agreed to fail, I'd give everyone else A's. Really? I feel like a lot. 5%. 1%. Um, oh, yeah, that would be easier. No, 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 you have to actually have to volunteer. Okay. Um, therefore, I think what you will see when messengers speak to Antony is they say things like, um, Labinius, this is stiff news, hath with his Parthian force extended Asia from Euphrates, his conquering banner shook from Syria to Lydia and to Ionia, whilst, and then he stops. Antony, thou would say, oh my Lord, says the messenger, speak to me home, says Antony. The messenger has really bad news for Antony, but he feels that it's bad news for Antony. He's not worried that Antony is going to turn to him and say, you bastard, how could you tell me this? It's Antony that he's feeling for. And therefore, when he says, Fulvia, thy wife is dead, or when the um, third messenger says, um, Fulvia, thy wife first came into the field. Fulvia, thy wife is dead. Um, when these messengers say that, what they are actually doing is expressing a kind of formal or quasi-formal language to talk about Fulvia giving her her full status as the person who is engaged in and who has died in these campaigns out of a kind of sympathy for Antony. They're not speaking of her informally. They're not saying, oh, Fulvia did this, Fulvia did that, which is how Cleopatra speaks of her. But they're saying, Fulvia, thy wife, because they know that that's how Antony will want her spoken of in this intense situation. Fulvia, thy wife is dead, the third messenger says. This is Act 1, Scene 2, line 107, page 2648 of the Norton. Fulvia, thy wife is dead, the third messenger says. And then Antony asks in a line that, we've, that I've told you, I've asked you to notice before, he asks, where died she? Um, and that question, where died she? That's a question that is worth thinking about. Shakespeare several times has characters <coughs> ask where deaths occurred when they hear about them. Lear wakes up from his um, trance of madness and then of um, medicine, and he sees Cordelia, and he thinks she's an angel, and he says, thou art a soul in bliss. Where did you die? That is, he sees the angel and he says, where did you die? Shakespearean editors think that's too bizarre a question. Shakespeare must have written, when did you die? And almost all editors will change that where to a when. Um, but they're not thinking of the fact that when... Um, Laertes hears that Ophelia is drowned. His response is, drowned? Oh, where? And now Antony hears of the death of Fulvia and says, where did she die? And later when Mardian reports the death of Cleopatra, falsely reports the death of Cleopatra, he will again ask, where? 
And it's worth wondering why for Shakespeare that would be the question you would ask about someone's death. And it's someone you love, someone who is important to you. Why would that be the question you asked about their death? And it's worth answering that question because it's, as, it's a version of that engulfing sense that Antony will also use after he hears of Cleopatra's death. Since Cleopatra died, I have lived in such dishonor that the gods detest my baseness. That sense being for the last couple of seconds, and yet it's everything. And it's as though at the very limit of things, what Antony is trying to do, what Laertes is trying to do, what Lear is trying to do, is locate a person who is gone forever at the last moment when they were not gone, as though they were trying to put the person in the world by, by making their death something that happened at a place you could point to. Lear's last words are, look there, look there, there, here, in this world, before they step off it forever. Um, at the shore of the world, at the extreme verge, Cleopatra will later say, after she hears of Antony's, or after Antony dies, rather, darkling stand the varying shore of the world. One of the spectacularly beautiful lines in the play, darkling stand the varying shore of the world. That is, let the shore of the world turn dark, but let it stand. It's another third person imperative. Darkling stand the varying shore of the world. As though that's what life is, is you come to the varying shore of the end of things. And it's not that you go elsewhere. It's that after that, there is no more where. You go nowhere. But what Antony and Lear and Cleopatra and Laertes and Richard try to do, among others, um, you'll see Leontes do this as well in The Winter's Tale, is to do what Lear tries to do at the end of King Lear when he says, Cordelia, stay a little. Be here still before you're off in nowhere. That last question, where is, to, is an attempt to arrest that movement into nowhere. And Antony's followers know him in a way that Caesar's followers don't. One of the scenes that um, Shakespeare um, take straight out of the source is Agrippa's, is Agrippa, um, actually, no, let's not go there now. Um, but the question of how much Anthony's followers know him, he is known to them and they love him. And Shakespeare is representing that over and over again. Then Enobarbus comes in and Antony tells him what's happened. Fulvia is dead. Sir, says Enobarbus, Fulvia is dead. Fulvia? Dead. And Enobarbus doesn't quite get it. Why, sir, give the gods a thankful sacrifice? Um, Enobarbus is there, who will betray Antony, to contrast with Cleopatra's response to the death of Fulvia. If you go to Act 1, Scene 3, 
Antony is saying, I'm leaving. Um, Cleopatra is angry. Um, Antony says, now my dearest queen. Cleopatra, no, I don't want to hear from you. I'm mightily betrayed. Antony, most sweet queen. Cleopatra, nay, pray you seek no color for your going. Notice that Antony keeps trying to get in a word edgewise, and Cleopatra is ranting against him. Um, we're going to see the converse scene later on, where Cleopatra tries to get a word in edgewise. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay, where Cleopatra later will try to get a word in edgewise, and Antony rants against her. Um, the scene is almost an exact parallel of this, although about a much more serious cause. Um, and finally, and he says, hear me, queen. He only calls Cleopatra in the vocative, that is, he only addresses her as Cleopatra twice in the play. Um, usually, it's just as Lear doesn't call the fool, fool. Antony doesn't call her Cleopatra. Um, he calls her my queen, my love. So hear me, queen. I've got to go. Sextus Pompeius makes his approaches to the port of Rome. Um, uh, everything is going badly. Um, it's all terrible. But my more particular, line 54, and that which most with you should safe my going is Fulvia's death. So now she knows. We've seen how Enobarbus responds to Fulvia's death. And he tries to make it comic. He tries to turn it into a comic scene. The tears live in an onion that should water this sorrow. Um, but Cleopatra's response shows how much more she knows Antony, even than Enobarbus. Because her reply is, though age from folly could not give me freedom, it does from childishness. Can Fulvia die? And she's astonished that Fulvia is dead, even as she understands it completely. And again, the grammatical resonance, the grammatical um, um, plangency of this play, the, its eeriness can be felt even in that question, can Fulvia die? As though that could be a question. And she's already dead, but can she die? How could that be? We've talked about third-person imperatives in this play, and we'll continue to talk about them, as though wishing hard enough could make something so. Let Rome and Tiber melt. Sink Rome and their tongues rot that speak against us. But here we have an indicative. The one thing that all living beings can do is die. No matter what else you are unable to do, the one thing that you will always be able to do eventually is to die. And here she takes the indicative statement par excellence, Fulvia has died, Fulvia is dead, and wonders if that's possible. And she says, she implies that her childish belief would be that Fulvia could not die. But no, <coughs> Fulvia is dead. And that for her is an end to her own childishness. She accepts what Antony says. She knows that she's been um, playful in her teasing and in her sulking, that it's all playful. But now she's above that. 
But still that question, can Fulvia die? And then she says, well, now I see in Fulvia's death how mine received shall be. Suddenly she's on Fulvia's side of things. She's not like Ina Barba saying, that's great. Now we can get married. She's not treating, this isn't a John Edwards situation. Um, what she's saying is, this is awful. Um, my precious queen, forbear, says Antony, and give true evidence to his love, which stands an honorable trial. And Cleopatra says, honorable trial? So Fulvia told me. I prithee turn aside and weep for her. Then bid adieu to me and say the tears belong to Egypt. Um, that is, you should be mourning her. And if you want to be playful with me, that's fine. Say their tears for me. Good now. Play one scene of excellent dissembling and let it look like perfect honor. Now there is teasing here, of course she's teasing him. She's teasing him for not mourning enough for Fulvia. Um, but she's also saying something about what their relationship is. And it's a relationship in which teasing, far from being the opposite of true love, goes as deep as life itself. She will tease him as he's dying also when she brings him up to her monument and he's mortally wounded. And she fishes for him and then she says, how heavy is my Lord. That is even at the moment of his death and even at the moment of absolute metaphoric heaviness, that is sadness, um, she turns that into a kind of joke, but a serious joke, a deep joke. And by serious joke, I don't mean a joke that has a serious background to it. I mean that what she's essentially saying is however deep seriousness gets you, in the world. Being jokey, teasing, interacting with someone in this mode of joking and of teasing gets you deeper. Because for Antony and for Cleopatra, especially for Cleopatra, I want this to be about Antony, but I'll say this about Cleopatra, especially for Cleopatra, teasing Antony and teasing herself and being teased by her women is always saying there's more in you and more that matters here and you go deeper than any claim for seriousness of purpose that you could possibly make. The serious people in this play are Caesar and Octavia and it's their seriousness that makes them shallow. The conflict between Rome and Alexandria, the way I was trying to set it up last week. The conflict between careful measuring and or flowing the measure is a conflict between seeing the world as a serious place and refusing to see the world as a serious place, not because you don't understand seriousness the way the grasshopper doesn't, but because the world is very paltry as a serious place. Who would want to live in a serious world? 
That's what Antony and Cleopatra, or that's at least the lesson of Alexandria. A serious world is not a world worth living in. There's too little there. It's too paltry. So it's not that Antony and Alexandria and Egypt and Cleopatra failed to see the importance of seriousness. It's that, to use a phrase of Oscar Wilde's, they don't accept the importance of importance. And that's what they, that's why they won't go the Roman way, although Antony is tempted by it. Um, but I was talking about Ina Barbas and Antony's men, and what I want us to turn to is um, go to, uh, in the Norton, it's page 2699, which is um, Act 4, actually go, go a little bit before that, 2696, Act 4, Scene 3. Um, this is also a scene from the source, which is that uh, music was heard in the streets of Alexandria. Um, this is after the terrible um, first battle of Actium, um, and Antony is lost because he's turned tail following Cleopatra, um, and then music is heard in the streets, and um, a couple of soldiers are wondering, what is that music? Um, is it a good sign or a bad sign? Um, and uh, then the second soldier says what it is. This is at line 13 of Act 4, Scene 3. Um, if you, by the way, if you have a different edition of Antony Cleopatra, you may not have the same um, act and scene divisions. Um, as I mentioned before, act and scene divisions in Shakespeare are not his. They're editorial. And Antony Cleopatra, um, the division between Act 3 and Act 4 um, are different in different texts. But um, in the Norton, it's Act 4, Scene 3. Um, what should this mean? The first soldier asks, and the second soldier says, "'Tis the god Hercules, whom Antony loved, now leaves him." So Hercules, Antony loved Hercules, and Hercules is abandoning him, and that's the music. It's the music of the gods that we hear. Um, in Simon Gray's great play, Butley, um, an Oxford Don who's teaching Shakespeare, um, summarizes this moment with a wonderful line the air is full of the gods' departing music. And that's what you get here, the gods' departing music. So Antony no longer has his patron to help him. He's lost his battle, and Hercules has abandoned him. One of the extraordinary things is that he will win the battle the next day without Hercules. That Antony, the next day, only with his own resources will nevertheless, as he puts it, beat Caesar and his men to his bed. That is, beat them away, send them turn tail back to their own camp, unable to defeat him. So Antony without Hercules is, to use a phrase of his, Antony yet. He is still Antony. Well, the next day he's arming, and um, a soldier comes in, all the other soldiers um, come in, he's ready for the next battle. Um, and then as the battle's about to occur, the, a soldier says, the god, this is Act 4, scene 5, 2698, 
the gods make this a happy day to Antony. Um, we realize that this is the soldier who earlier told him to fight on land and not to throw away. Um, that's the phrase the soldier uses. Do not throw away the absolute generalship you have on land. Hang on to that phrase, throw away, because later Canidius will say, we have kissed away kingdoms and provinces. Um, and Antony says... Would thou and those thy scars had once prevailed to make me fight at land, if only I'd listened to you? And the soldier replied, Hadst thou done so, the kings that have revolted and the soldier that has this morning left thee would have still followed thy heels. So here we're getting very bad news for Antony. And Antony asks, Who's gone this morning? And the soldier replies, Who? One ever near thee, call for Enobarbus. He shall not hear thee. Or from Caesar's camp say, I am none of thine. So that's the extraordinary moment of the defection of the absolute friend, the window character. Um, here he's abandoned Antony despite having said twice that he wouldn't do it, that it would be better to die with Antony and find a place in the story, as he puts it. Um, that it would be better to um, conquer his own bad fortune by accepting it, and thus, as he puts it, becoming his captain's captain by staying loyal even to the death. Um, but, he, but to our complete surprise, Enobarbus, who's been so eloquent about following the wounded chance of Antony, has left, and we haven't seen him left. We've heard him say, I will find some way to leave him, but we didn't know that he's left, but he does, and he leaves when Hercules does. That is, the leaving of Enobarbus is represented in the play as the music of Hercules' departure. That is, it's a metaphorical image, um, a poetic account of abandonment, which turns out to have a real consequence. Enobarbus is gone. Okay, Antony can't believe it. What sayest thou, soldier? Sir, he is with Caesar. Okay, that's the bad news. So far, this scene, although the, what it reports is shocking and surprising, and Shakespeare was really interested in doing this, so far, the scene is more or less standard issue, spectacular Shakespeare scene. But it's what follows that I want to point to. Eros then says to Antony, Sir, his chests and treasure he has not with him. Now, the question to ask and the question that I answer is, why does Eros say that? And the answer is that it's Eros who really, who's now going to be the window for Antony till the end of the play, Eros, love, who really gets Antony in a way that Eno Barbus should have and sometimes did, but finally um, failed to, at least temporarily failed to. And the temporariness of that failure is another thing that we'll see in a moment. But it's Eros gets Antony, and what 
he, when he says, sir, his chest and treasure, he has not with him. He says it because he knows what Antony will do with that information. So, Antony still hasn't taken it in. Eros has, but Antony hasn't. Is he gone? Most certain, says the soldier. And then Antony says to Eros what Eros knew he would. Go, Eros. Send his treasure after. Do it. Detain no jot, I charge thee. Write to him. I will subscribe. That is, I'll sign. Gentle adieus and greetings. Say that I wish he never find more cause to change a master. Oh, my fortunes have corrupted honest men. Dispatch to Eurobarbus. Hurry, and then Enobarbus. Um... Eros knew what Antony would do. And Eros told Antony what Antony needed to know so that Antony would do it. Now, you may think that that's not certain. That is, you may think that what we're getting here is another awkward little bit of information, which is we need to know that Enobarbus left his treasures and Eros is the person who has to convey that information to us, so that Antony can do this incredibly noble thing. Um, but that's not how Shakespeare would have done it. The way Shakespeare would have done it would be having the soldier say, the one that's gone this morning, not even pausing to take his chests and treasures, would still have been here. Um, that is, we would have gotten an insistence on how quickly he decamped um, and um, how important it was for him to get away from Antony. But it's not the soldier who says it, it's Eros, and that's what Eros is doing in the scene. And the way you can see it is in the next scene. So now we have Enobarbus coming in, um, and Caesar has this terrible, evil plan. By the way, it's true that Enobarbus did leave, this is also in the, in, in the history, Enobarbus did leave his treasures um, in Antony's camp, and Antony did send them after him. So this is a true story that Shakespeare is fascinated by. Um, and it's in fact that story that he gets from Plutarch. It's, it's two lines in Plutarch. And it's because of those two lines that Antony puts Enobarbus into the play and makes him a main character or makes him a, a strong, the Shakespeare, thank you, and Antony. But the Shakespeare puts Enobarbus into the play um, and makes him so, so prominent a character. Um, next scene, Caesar um, says, plant those that have revolted in the van. That is, put Antony's men in the vanguard of the battle against him, that Antony may seem to spend his fury upon himself. That is, that Antony, however furious and great a fighter he is, he will be undoing himself, fighting against himself, by fighting against those who were his followers. And now Enobarbus knows that he's done the wrong thing. Alexis did revolt. We didn't know that until now. Alexis, that's terrible, and went to Jewry, that is to Israel, on affairs of Antony, there to dissuade great Herod to incline himself to Caesar and leave his master, Antony. For this pains, Caesar hath hanged him. Canidius and the rest that fell away have entertainment, but no honorable trust. I have done ill, 
of which I do accuse myself so sorely that I will join no more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because Caesar didn't trust him. Um, this is this is just a, you don't need to know from the play. It's a it's um, Shakespeare was looking at the source, um, and Alexis did revolt, and then he had a falling out with Caesar, and Caesar hanged him. Um, if you want to read the 150 pages of Plutarch, they're worth reading. Really, they're great. And um, there is Shakespeare's translation. So a guy named Abraham North translated Plutarch about 20 years before Shakespeare wrote Anna and Cleopatra. And that's what Shakespeare read. And he gets a lot of the suggestions for his own language out of North's translation. It's an amazing thing um, to look at how Shakespeare transmutes his sources linguistically to look at what Shakespeare does with North's phrases, um, how Shakespeare tweaks them into some of the, some of the most amazing speeches in Antony and Cleopatra. At any rate, I have done ill, says Enobarbus, of which I do accuse myself so sorely that I will join no more. Then enter soldiers of Caesar's. Enobarbus, he says, picking up from the scene earlier. Enobarbus, Antony hath after thee sent all thy treasure with his bounty over plus. So not only everything that belonged to you, but more. He sent you gifts. He sent his bounty over plus. That's a word we've seen earlier when Antony, in his insanity of doing whatever Caesar dares him to, says, insists on fighting by sea. And not only that, but he says, our overplus of shipping shall we burn. That is, we'll make sure that it's not unfair by having more ships than he has. Um, Antony is always destroying or giving away or squandering advantage and squandering wealth. Antony is the least grasping, the least accumulating, the least miserly of figures. Richard II was a figure of prodigious waste, but Antony makes waste a principle of life. And that's an important fact about him, that no matter how little he has, he will continue to be magnificent in what he gives to others. As he um, says to his soldiers a little bit earlier, let's have, call my sad captains. Um, that became the title of a wonderful book of poetry by Tom Gunn, My Sad Captains. Call my sad captains. Let's have one other gaudy night. So it's the night before what may be their last battle. He says, maybe it's the, it is the period of your duty. You may not see me more or if a mangled shadow. But let's have one other gaudy night. And Cleopatra says to Enobarbus, what, what does he mean by this? And Enobarbus says, he means to make his followers weep. And Antony looks around and everyone is weeping because of their loyalty, because Antony sensed that it may be over and that they can then make their peace with Caesar. That's not what they want. And he looks at them and he says, I didn't mean it like this. The good witch take me, if thus I meant this. I spake this for your comfort, did desire you to burn this night with torches. 
So what he's saying is tomorrow may be the end of my life. So let's really go wild tonight. All other characters in Shakespeare, before a battle they're sure they'll lose, are haunted, again to quote Richard II, by the ghosts of those they have deposed. When Richard III is about to have his last battle, he can't sleep. He's lying fitfully in his tent, and all the people who he's killed come to him, and they haunt him, and they say, tomorrow in the battle, think on me. Let fall thy nerveless sword, despair, and die. And Brutus himself is haunted before the battle at Philippi against Antony and Caesar. Um, but Antony is saying, well, this may be the battle which is the end of life. Let's burn this night with torches. So now he is sending his bounty over plus to Enobarbus. The messenger came on my garden at thy tent is now unloading of his mules. And Enobarbus says to the soldier, I give it you. The soldier says, mock not, Enobarbus, I tell you true. Now something very Shakespearean, very amazing has occurred in a kind of haiku-like interaction, which is that Enobarbus says to the soldier, you can have it all. And the soldier says, no, I'm telling you the truth, he really did this. So what the soldier thinks is that Enobarbus would never believe this unbelievable news that Antony has sent all this stuff to him, whereas Enobarbus believes it without missing a beat. All the soldier had to do was tell him this, and Enobarbus knew it was true so immediately that he didn't even have to say, Wow, that Antony, ain't he amazing? He knew it was true, and he skipped that part. He didn't want it. He just says to the soldier, I give it you. And the soldier's response is a cue of the wrong response to what Enobarbus has just said. That is, the soldier, by saying, you're not amazed, you should be, is saying... Or what he's saying is, this is such amazing news that of course you don't believe me. But for Enobarbus, it's not amazing at all. It's just Antony. That's what Antony does. I give it you. Mock not Enobarbus, the soldier says, I tell you true. Best you saved the bringer out of the host. That is, give a safe conduct to the messenger who brought all the treasure. I must attend mine office or would have done it myself. And then the soldier says absolutely right and this is what Shakespeare wants to underline your emperor continues still a Jove he has nothing and yet he continues still a Jove he is still Jove like in what he does your emperor continues still a Jove and he exits but Eno Barbus of course he knows it's true and we get his little soliloquy, I am alone, the villain of the earth, and feel I am so most. Oh, Antony, one of a dozen or more times in this play that someone says, oh, Antony, to a figure not there. 
It's always, over and over again, people will say, oh, Antony. No one says, oh, Caesar, when he's not there. And in fact, no one says, oh, Cleopatra, when she's not there, except for Antony himself. But Antony is somehow so tremendous a figure that people are always calling upon him. Caesar does too. Oh, Antony, leave thy lascivious wassails, he says, and return to Rome. It's as though even in his absence, Antony is the dominating figure in people's minds. Um, that's why Cleopatra wants her last words to be, oh, Antony, and why her penultimate words, not quite her last words, her last words are, why should I stay? And then she's interrupted. Why should I stay in this world, here, where I am now, in this last weirdness? But she wants her last words to be, oh, Antony. Here, Ina Barbus's last words practically are, oh, Antony. He's going to die um, in um, a couple of scenes where does he die? Um, uh, Act 4, scene 10. Yeah, his last words actually are, oh, Antony, oh, Antony, um, page 2701, Act 4, scene 10, line 22. Um, oh, Antony, thou mine of bounty, how wouldst thou have paid my better service when my turpitude thou dost so crown with gold? I will go seek some, witch wherein, some ditch wherein to die. And then he seeks the ditch, Let's go to Act 4, Scene 10, page 2701. Ina Barbus is here, ready to die. Oh, bear me witness, night. Be witness to me, O oh, thou blessed moon. This is 410, line 7. When men revolted shall upon record bear hateful memory. That is when those who have revolted are remembered in the record of things. When that will be so bear me witness, bear witness to me, O thou blessed moon, that poor Enobarbus did before thy face repent. And um, Plutarch does say that he repented, and Shakespeare does have him repent, and he does get a place in the story, and the witness is given to us. He does repent, and we know that he repents, and Ina Barbus goes on at line 11, O sovereign mistress of true melancholy, the poisonous damp of night disponge upon me. Um, there's one of those dis words in this play, um, like Cleopatra's um, calling upon um, everything to discandy. The poisonous um, damp of night disponge upon me, that life, a very rebel to my will, may hang no longer on me, throw my heart against the flint and hardness of my fault, which being dried with grief will break to powder and finish all foul thoughts. And then this great line, O oh, Antony, nobler than my revolt is infamous. O oh, Antony, nobler than my revolt is infamous. Forgive me in thine own particular, but let the world rank me and register a master lever and a fugitive. Oh, Antony. Oh, Antony. Now, notice that there's something really importantly 
significant about the not quite coherent idea that Antony is nobler than his revolt is infamous. Because Antony's nobility and his revolt should be reciprocals of each other. The nobler Antony is, the more infamous his revolt. However noble Antony is, that makes Enobarbus all the worst. They vary in all the worst, they vary inversely. But the thing about Antony is that his nob that you can't measure infamy or the infamy of revolt by trying to measure the nobility of Antony. Enobarbus' revolt, its infamy can be measured, and it's terrible. But Antony's nobility is so overwhelmingly measureless, so overflows the measure, that it's not in this inverse relationship to Enobarbus. Enobarbus' revolt is infamous, but Antony's nobler still. And that's always how Antony is represented. Let's go, um, how much time do we have? 25 minutes. Let's go to Cleopatra's great description of Antony to Dolabella. Um, this is Act 5, Scene 2. Um, Antony has told Cleopatra to trust only Proculeus. Um, Antony turns out to be wrong. Proculeus is the person who captures her, um, betrays her, um, won't tell her the truth. Um, now we're at Act 5, Scene 2. And then Dolabella comes in and um, has been sent there by Caesar and says, Recolius, what thou hast done, thy master Caesar knows, and he hath sent for thee for the queen. I'll take her to my guard. Um, Recolius agrees, so Dolabella shall content me best. Be gentle to her. So Annie got him right that way. To Caesar, I will speak what you shall please, he says to Cleopatra, if you'll employ me to him. And then Cleopatra says, yeah, okay, here's what I want. Say I would die. Um, famous line of the Cumaean Sibyls, I wish to die, I want to die. Um, T.S. Eliot, who was obsessed with Antony and Cleopatra, as was Milton, um, I think is thinking of this moment when he has the story of the epigraph. Do people know about this? Uh, the Cumaean Sibyl, they said to the Sibyl, Sibyl, who was in, who was captured and in a cage, Sibyl, Sibyl, what do you want? And she answered, apothanatein thelo which is, I wish to die. Um, and I think that Eliot is actually connecting that to Antony and Cleopatra. If you know the wasteland, I mean, there's no reason you should know Eliot. Your life, you're, you're freeing up a lot of mental space by not wasting any time on T.S. Eliot. Um, but um, in one of the, but there are a, great, a lot of great lines in the wasteland. Um, those great lines are not by Eliot, um, but they're great. And um, in one section of the wasteland begins, the chair she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the waters, um, which is um, straight from Enobarbus' description of Cleopatra. It's the, a game of chess is the section of the wasteland. The barge she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the waters. Um, so um, Dolabella then turns to Cleopatra, who's in despair. Now, one very good Shakespearean critic uh, a guy named Stephen Booth, um, rightly calls, rightly calls Dolabella 
um, Cleopatra's last conquest um, because he immediately falls in love with her. This guy, Booth, um, thinks that Dolabella was doubled with Antony. That is, that the same actor who played Antony comes back now as Dolabella. I don't think that's true. I think that that would actually ruin the scene. What I actually think is that if you double Dolabella with Ina Barbas, that is, if the actor who played Ina Barbas now comes back as Dolabella, um, you'll see something really, the audience will see something important in the play. Um, so it's almost as though if you think of Dolabella as Ina Barbas returned, it's almost as though he gets that last chance, not as Ina Barbas, but still as a person who makes a certain kind of scene possible. And here's the scene. Most noble empress, you have heard of me. Cleopatra, I cannot tell. She's paying him no attention. I cannot tell. Dolabella, assuredly, you know me. Cleopatra, no matter, sir, what I have heard or known. Now, again, ask yourself, and in late Shakespeare, you should always ask yourself, late, late Shakespeare doesn't waste a syllable. Shakespeare, at this point in his career, is so insanely greater a writer than anyone who has ever lived that there is nothing that you shouldn't be paying attention to. Um, ask yourself, why is Dolabella asking Cleopatra to know who he is? And I think the answer is something like this, that Dolabella wants to be someone with a place in the story, wants to be someone whom Cleopatra knew. That if Cleopatra when her biography is written, if something is mentioned there of Cleopatra's saying of Dolabella, oh yes, and then Caesar sent Dolabella to me, then for the rest of time, Dolabella is a person who was named by Cleopatra. Um, who was it who wrote the story of Friend of Kafka's? Do you remember? The story, a friend of Kafka's. Um, yeah, that's the title of the story. I think it was. I, I think it was Singer. I, I think it was I B Singer, but I'm not sure. Anyhow, there's a story called A Friend of Kafka's, and the title tells you everything, which is how amazing to go down in history as a friend of Kafka's. How amazing to go down in history as someone whom Cleopatra knew about and had something to think about, um, wanted to think about him. So please, he says to her, know who I am. Most noble empress, you have heard of me. I cannot tell. He's unhappy. Assuredly, you know me. No matter, sir, what I have heard or known. Doesn't matter whether I know you or not. I'm thinking of Antony. You laugh when boys or women tell their dreams. Is it not your trick? Dolabella, I understand not, madam. Partly meaning I'm not laughing at you. And then Cleopatra tells her dream. I dreamt there was an Emperor Antony. Again, notice the an Emperor Antony. So I dreamt there was an Emperor Antony. Oh, such another sleep that I might see, but such another man. 
Um, remember earlier that she's wanted to take Mandragora to sleep out the great gap of time that Antony was away. Now she wants to sleep in order to dream of Antony. If it might please ye. His face, she goes on, was as the heavens, and therein stuck a sun and moon which kept their course and lighted the little O, the earth. Most sovereign creature, Dolabella tries to interrupt her, again trying to get in a word edgewise, but no. His legs bestrid the ocean, his reared arm crested the world, his voice was propertied as all the tuned spheres, remember that great property which still should go with being Antony? His voice was property that is all the tuned spheres, and that to friends. But when he meant to quail and shake the orb, he was as rattling thunder. And then you probably all have a very bad editorial decision in your books. The Norton certainly screws it up, no surprise. Um, but there's a, there's a mistake here. Um, for his bounty, same word that Enobarbus has used before, for his bounty, there was no winter in it. And then what appears in Shakespeare's text is an awe, an awe, excuse me, for his bounty, there was no winter in it, and Antony twas that grew the more by reaping. And the same editor, actually the very same editor, Louis Tybalt, whom um, Alexander Pope wrote his longest poem to uh, make fun of, the poem called The Dunciad. Um, Louis Tybalt, however, was probably the greatest single Shakespearean editor ever. How, but he was also wrong, like Alan Greenspan, 30% of the time. Um, and the 30% of the time he was wrong, this is one instance of it. So he said, um, for his bounty, there was no winter in it. And Antony twas? That makes no sense. Winter, it must be, he was always autumn. Um, he wasn't winter, he was autumn perpetually. Which is a good guess, and which is right insofar as that is what we're supposed to expect. We're supposed to think Antony is like an autumn that goes on forever, always being bountiful, always um, producing more and more harvest. But we're supposed to expect that and then merge it with what Shakespeare actually wrote, which is an Antony twas that grew the more by reaping. Um, which also has a little bit of an obscene pun, just so you don't miss it, um, which is lost if it's an autumn twas that grew the more by reaping. Um, the point is, the more, well, you see the point, the obscene point there. Um, but her view is the only possible comparison for Antony. You can't compare him to Enobarbus' revolt because he's nobler than Enobarbus' revolt is infinite, is, is infamous. You can't say take the absolute value of Enobarbus' revolt and then you get Antony's nobility. Enobarbus' revolt isn't sufficiently there to be a possible point of comparison for Antony. The only thing you can compare Antony to is Antony himself. So how do you describe Antony's bounty? 
why an Antony twas that grew the more by reaping. His delights were dolphin-like. One of the most amazing similes ever. His delights were dolphin-like. They showed his back above the element they lived in. Again, telling you there's nothing you can compare him to in the world in which he lived. In his livery walked crowns and crownants. That is, kings and dukes walked in his, in his uniform of service. In his livery walked crowns and crownants. Realms and islands were as plates dropped from his pocket. Um, all of these things, they were just loose change for him. Cleopatra, Dolabella tries to interrupt. Again, can't be, can't be the actor playing Antony because he would never call her Cleopatra to her face. He doesn't do that. Cleopatra, think you, she won't let him in, think you there was or might be such a man as this I dreamt of? Then he's got the great answer which sets up what's about to follow but which also is the cue of her greatness. Gentle madam, no. That is the tenderness of that answer, the delicacy of that answer is something to notice as we pass it. And then she replies, you lie up to the hearing of the gods. And then she explains why Antony had to exist. But if there be, that is unless... There were or are or be such a one, but if there be or ever were such one, it's past the size of dreaming. So how do we know that Antony existed and was as great as this? Because no one could have imagined him. He's past the capacity of the human mind to dream him up. What I've just described, the man that I've just told you about, had to exist because no person could imagine him. But if there be or ever were such one, it's past the size of dreaming. Nature wants stuff to vie strange forms with fancy. That is, the imagination, fancy, can always imagine more than nature can produce in real life. Nature doesn't have the materials to compete with fantasy in the production of um, experience. Um, so Cleopatra says, except to imagine an Antony, third time in this scene, that we get an Antony. And here Tybalt leaves it as an Antony, because it's, that's obviously right. Yet to imagine an Antony, where nature's peace gainst fancy, condemning shadows quite. So only nature could imagine an Antony. And the dream that I had, that there was an Emperor Antony, that's when I was in the world when nature imagined him. And now it's that dream that I've woken up from, the dream of my past of reality when reality was real, when, when reality had all the reality of Antony, which Antony could not be 
dreamt up. That's how he continues still a Jove. That's how he shows the extraordinary magnificence that never fails him. So let's go back to um, the first Battle of Actium. Go back to, um, let's say, page um, uh, 20... Yeah, Act 3, Scene 11, page um, 2686. Um, I'll probably remind you tomorrow, but since we're talking about Anne Anthony now, I'll give you another instance, is the scene we were looking at before when Antony is leaving. Um, Cleopatra, in an amazing moment, has a point where she says, there's something else I wanted to say to you before you left. Um, sir... You and I have loved, but that's not it. Sir, you and I must part, but there's not it. Something she wanted to say, but she can't remember. Shakespeare is the first person to show people forgetting what they wanted to say in real time. Um, remember, Polonius does that also in, um, in Hamlet. It's one of the things that Shakespeare saw that no one had ever seen before. But then she says... Oh, my oblivion is a very Antony, and I am all forgotten. That is, I can't remember what I wanted to say. My own forgetfulness is like Antony. I'm, for, I'm, I'm forgetting what I wanted to say. I'm, my memory is abandoning me just the way you're doing. Um, but again, notice that Antony is the point of comparison. Um, we saw someone, we saw Enobarbus say this about Caesar earlier. Would you pray Caesar, say Caesar, go no further? Um, but that only happens once with Caesar, and that's pure um, um, uh, courtesy. Um, Antony, in the same party, remember Lepidus is asking him about the crocodile? Um, and he says, what manner of fish is your crocodile? And Antony says, well, it is of its own size and its own color, too. And, Le and Lepidus says, well, what does it eat? He says, it eats its own food um, and is nourished by what it eats. Lepidus is saying, wow, that's amazing. Um, and, um, um, and then Antony says, and the tears of it are wet. Um, and Lepidus is really impressed by this description of the crocodile. Obviously, that's all comic. It's partly a takedown of Caesar. Would you praise Caesar, say Caesar, go no further? Want to describe a crocodile? Compare it to a crocodile. But it's also suggesting the extent to which what a creature is can make the creature the only thing it can be compared to. The creature can only be compared to itself. A crocodile is very like a crocodile. And Caesar is very like Caesar but Antony can only be compared to the property of being Antony. And that's enough in this play to see how magnificent he is, that only Antony is a point of comparison for Antony. Okay, so Antony loses um, the first battle. I said it was Canadius, but it's actually Scarus in this edition who says, um, this is Act 3, Scene 10, uh, the greater cantle of the world is lost with very ignorance. We have kissed away kingdoms 
and provinces. And Enobarbus, who's talking to him about this, says he can't believe what he saw. That I beheld. Mine eyes did sicken at the sight and could not endure a further view. I point those lines out to you that when you can't bear to look at something, it's so terrible. Enobarbus is cueing us to that idea that you have to look away because what you're looking at is so terrible. It's not an uncommon idea. Um, people shield their eyes all the time. I can't bear looking at that. Um, then, next scene, enter Antony with attendance. And Antony has this amazing speech. I should just stop saying amazing speech. It's a speech of Antony's. That's all you need to know. Um, hark, the land bids me tread no more upon it. It is ashamed to bear me. Friends, come hither. And then this line, I am so lated in the world that I have lost my way forever. Just that one line, I am so lated in the world that I. Um, framed by the pronoun I, I am so lated in the world that I. Um, what he's saying is, it's so dark now in time. I have been in the world so long that I'm lost. I will never find my home. And the I, in drama, we don't talk about enjambment except when it's Shakespeare. The I at the end of the line, its precariousness at the end of that line is exactly what Antony is feeling. I am so lated in the world that I have lost my way forever. The I is about to tumble down and to become as indistinct as water is in water. I have a ship laden with gold. So he's lost everything. What does he do? He says, take my ship laden with gold. Take that, divide it, fly, and make your peace with Caesar. And his men are loyal. Fly, not we. And Annie says, I have fled myself and instructed cowards to run and show their shoulders. Friends, be gone. Let that be left which leaves itself. I will possess you of that ship and treasure. Leave me, I pray, a little. And then Cleopatra comes in. And Antony doesn't want to look at her. Um, and um, Eros, and Antony says, I have offended reputation of most unnoble swerving in line 48. Eros, sir, the queen. Remember, Eros is the figure who knows Antony a step before he knows himself. And then he turns to her and says, again, in a, well, you know, oh, whither hast thou led me, Egypt? See how I convey my shame out of thine eyes by looking back what I have left behind, destroyed in dishonor. Now notice what he's saying is, look where I am. I am so full of shame. The land is ashamed to bear me. But look at what I am doing now in order not to allow you to see my shameful self. I will look at what is unbearable to look at. I will convey my shame out of thine eyes. I will turn away from you to look at the unbearable loss that I have destroyed in dishonor. And yet, 
I will bear looking at that unbearable sight in order not to have you see me shamed. Cleopatra, oh my Lord, my Lord, forgive my fearful sails. I little thought you would have followed. Egypt, thou knewest too well my heart was to thy rudder was to thy rudder tied by the strings, and thou shouldst tow me after, or my spirit thy full supremacy thou knewest, and that thy back might from the bidding of the gods command me. Oh, my pardon, says Cleopatra. Now I must to the young man send humble treaties, dodge and palter in the ships of loneliness, who with half the bulk of the world played as I pleased, making and marring fortunes. You did know how much you were my conqueror, and that my sword, made weak by my affection, would obey it on all cause. Cleopatra, pardon, pardon, the only word she can get in edgewise. And then immediate change. Fall not a tear, I say. Another third person imperative. Ignore the footnote that says weep or drop for the word fall. It's a third person imperative. May not a tear fall. All of them. One of them rates all that is won and lost. So his recovery is astonishing, astonishingly quick. It's part of his endless Jove-like resources, not of courage or strength or hope, but of pure, sheer will and pure, sheer love. Cleopatra needs only say, ask for pardon. And Antony will do it immediately. He will do it again in the scene after Thidias comes in to try to make terms with Cleopatra. We'll look at that a little bit on Friday um, and then segue into um, discussing Cleopatra.